that is the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful, by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. May the souls of the faithful depart. For the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. For Mary, refuge of sinners, pray for us. St. Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. <coughs> so this conference will go about 20 minutes, and uh, actually, wanted to cover a lot of ground, probably too much. How about St. Joseph, St. Patrick, and St. Visitor of the Farmer? and uh, what they have to tell us about our duties to the Sacred Heart. Uh, I'd probably better just go straight to the Sacred Heart. Uh, there are a number of apparitions of St. Joseph that I wanted to uh, give a little more information on, but um, don't have time to do everything today. Um, but the information is available to you. I mentioned the apparition at Knock, and I mentioned the apparition of St. Joseph uh, even in October of 1917, at the last appearance of Our Lady Fatima, the miracle of the sun, St. Joseph appeared there also. <clears throat> but St. Joseph has appeared at other times and actually worked other miracles. <clears throat> um, I mentioned that there was even talk of uh, an apparition of St. Joseph in the United States, right here actually in Cincinnati, and Bishop Leibold actually being convinced that it was true. When he was bishop, he even authorized the printing of a pamphlet about it to a, a nun here in Cincinnati. Interesting. It was associated with apparitions of Our Lady called Our Lady of the Americas, which is, I don't think it's ever been given any formal approbation by the church. Um, so it is nothing more than the kind of a, a interest of interest because it is so near near at home, so to speak. But uh, I did want to say a little bit about St. Patrick. Actually, what I need to do is actually go on to talking about the Sacred Heart itself, and then try to give a little, a few thoughts about how uh, the Saint, working example of St. Joseph, St. Patrick, and St. Isidore all converge to tell us something about ourselves and our relationship to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Um, you know that um, Saint Joseph, as I mentioned, was a, a man's man, truly. Okay. He saw himself on a mission. He could not be turned aside by anything of personal interest it was, that was irrelevant to him. His personal comfort, personal satisfaction was of no interest whatsoever to him. As a matter of doing God's will, that's all he cared about. And uh, there was a source of his strength. He was not fragile. And I use that word fragile because it actually appears in today's Mass a couple of times, fragile. Um, and in using the word in, in the orations, we're actually applying the word to ourselves, being fragile. In the uh, secret of the Mass today, we ask God 
to deliver us from our own fragility, to overcome our being fragile. And this strikes me as being exactly the opposite of what a man is supposed to be, and exactly the opposite of what St. Joseph, who St. Joseph really was. If anything, he was not fragile. But we often are fragile, and what makes us fragile is our ability to uh, forget the big picture and focus on the small picture and minutely on ourselves, our own egos. And that makes us very fragile. As a matter of fact, we saw in the, uh, the longest epistle, as it's called, it's actually not an epistle, it really is a reading from the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, the account of two old men, elders, who lusted and lied and wanted to cost a young, innocent, pure soul her purity, and then failing that, they wanted to cost her her life. Tragic. Daniel, a young man, in captivity, in the, this is during the Babylonian captivity, <clears throat> stood up and rebuked the crowd. They were so much uh, filled with confidence in the lying word of these two elders that they took their word without evidence just on the basis of their testimony well Daniel snapped them out of that <clears throat> then snapped them out of that illusion they had that these two elders must be telling the truth and you saw how simply he did it the simplicity with which Daniel showed how uh, they were lying and conspiring to put this poor dear woman to death. After all, somebody had to be guilty. If it wasn't Susanna who was guilty, it was the two of them. Somebody was going to pay for someone's crime. Someone was going to pay for their crimes. And they certainly didn't want it to be themselves. But Daniel pierced through that fog and he showed people who the real liars were and who the, where the real truth is. We saw a kind of simplicity in that wisdom, a simplicity which we see in St. Joseph too. It was as though he, he saw things in a very simple way, uh, piercing down the fog and the confusion, piercing through all of the, uh, the false assumptions and so on. He was a very down-to-earth individual with a very keen mind. And more important than that, a real great love for God. And that gave him a, a wisdom to pierce through the falsities of the world. We need that today. We need to be able to find our way through all the bluster and all of the false testimony, the so-called fake news, the so-called misinformation. We need to be able to get through all of that. And if there's a model for that today, it would be, again, St. Joseph. He kept his eye completely on the goal, and that is the service of God. He was not fragile. One thing about St. Joseph, we don't hear anything from him, but if we were to live day by day with him under the same roof, I think the last thing we would expect of him is complaints, something with which we may be very familiar. Again, that shows our fragility, complaining. Our complaints show our weakness. We're frustrated and flustered that we don't have control over it, that there are things that are happening that are contrary to our will and we just can't abide it. 
it, it, it just troubles us and rankles us all the time. Complaints are not only a bad example to others, not only do they undermine others' happiness and satisfaction, even, even a sense of gratitude, because complaints actually arise out of a lack of gratitude for the blessings we have, whereas all we're focusing on is the things we don't like. <clears throat> complaints also show our fragility, and they are unworthy of a man to be just consumed with complaints and complaining all the time about this and that and the other. If a man has his complaints, he takes it to his God, he takes it to his Lord. <clears throat> but he doesn't go around fussing like a fuss budget around everybody else. Again, it shows his fragility. He should be ashamed of that. Well, we see the example of St. Joseph. We see the example also of St. Patrick and the example of Israel the farmer. You might say that Israel the farmer and St. Joseph had much more in common than either of them have with St. Patrick because St. Joseph was a woodworker and St. Isidore the farmer was a laborer. He worked the earth. So that's why they, that, that type of labor in Spanish they refer to uh, primarily as working the earth. And he's known as St. Isidore the farmer. That's what he did, actually. He was a day laborer at first. He was hired by a wealthy man outside of Madrid. This was all the way back in the 10 hundreds. That's how long ago it was. It was a thousand years ago. And uh, that this man lived, and we remember him today, even though he was a farmer. We remember him. Do you remember him for his farming? No. Remember him for his virtue. He uh, was a, a great advocate of the poor. He was poor himself. Finally, actually, some of his own fellow uh, workers complained about him and would have deprived him of his job even as a laborer because they, they thought he prayed too much and he would sometimes arrive late the field work, as it turned out, it was because he was going to Mass. And sometimes the Mass would go a little bit long, and he would arrive late. So his uh, supervisor actually heard these complaints and went to find him, and found him in prayer. But while he was in prayer, this is uh, actually part of the iconography associated with him, he found the angel actually tilling the soil for him. The angel was doing the farm work for him. And uh, this um, foreman, it might have actually been the, the rich man who owned the place, actually, uh, elevated him and put him in charge of the entire farm operation. He thought there's nothing better to do than enlisting a few angels to help out with the farm work. And with St. Isidore, he was able to do that. Angels put themselves at his service while he prayed, while he attended Mass. And uh, his, his work was much more productive than the work of the others because of the prayer he put in the soil with the seed. Now, St. Isidore was known for bringing home those who were poor and hungry to share what meager food he and his wife could provide and his wife could prepare. She's also commonly considered a saint. And uh, the two of them had one child. In this regard, I guess, you could identify with St. Isidore too. Because he was a married man, and he did have a child. In fact, he lost the child to death. That child drowned in a well. But by prayer, that child was revived. There's a miracle associated with him that as he and his wife prayed, begging God's mercy, the, the water in the well began to rise and rise and rise, and lo and behold, 
floated the child to the top of the well, and they retrieved the child safe and sound. <clears throat> and uh, so that, that little one of theirs was restored to them. Of course, the gratitude of that was very great. And St. Isidore and his wife actually vowed chastity and celibacy for, as a, as a, in a thanksgiving to God for this miracle. Anyway, there, there are close to 500 miracles attested to uh, the intercession of this humble farmhand. And um, he is very greatly revered. He's a patron saint of Madrid, patron saint of all farm laborers. And um, actually is revered around the world. Wherever you sign the, to find the name Isidore, you find it's either some place named after, or some church named after uh, his namesake, St. Isidore the Confessor, uh, or named after him, Isidore the Farmer. So uh, we have reason to appeal to him here and now, not only because so much of uh, our area around us is farm country, but because they're talking about food shortages. And uh, to go to a man who shared what little he had on his plate with the poor, and those are indeed, is a good idea, especially now that he's in heaven with Almighty God and has such power. We need his help right here and now. There's so much more that could say, be said about him, and of course about St. Patrick, but I assume you already know so much about St. Patrick that he doesn't need much of an introduction. The reason why I brought these three men together I wanted to bring them together in the conferences here for the Day of Recollection is for one reason, because the church actually brings them together in the calendar of her feast days. I mean, St. Joseph, you know, on the 19th of, of March, just two days before the feast day of St. Patrick on the 17th, St. Isidore the Farmer on the 22nd, his feast was actually was originally going to be set on the day of his death, May 15th, but there was already a feast day of a double, a double feast day of a saint on that date, so it was placed on March 22nd. And so we have these saints between March 17th and March 22nd, we have them all within <coughs> one week, within one week's time. And I also wanted to join them together because their lives are very different. And yet, they all manifested something that we need today, and that is a, an absolutely disinterested, disinterested, uh, you might say, all-consuming dedication to the will of God, to fulfill the will of God, whatever it might be for them. These three men had very different lives because they had very different services to render to God. And yet, ultimately, they share the glory of heaven now, as compatriots there. They shared the same faith and hope and love here on earth, and that brought them to that consummation of divine love in heaven, which now unites them within God himself, within the love of God himself. They see us here now. They see us in God. They see his creation, and they see you and me. And they're more aware of us than we are aware of our, each other. And some, you might even argue, they're more aware of us now in the mind of our Creator than we are aware of ourselves. <clears throat> they see us, you might say, even as our guardian angel sees us. But not only through the eyes of the nature of an angel with great power, 
but actually through the eyes of God. But they also not only see us that intimately, they, they love us more perfectly than anyone could ever love here on this earth. Because their love is absolutely pure. And so we appeal to them today to help us. We need our St. Patrick today. We need our St. Isidore today. We need our St. Joseph today. We need to be those saints today here in this world. So I, I said, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Sacred Heart, and we don't have much time, I know. But I do want to uh, speak about the Sacred Heart in our lives, and to some extent it also applies to every priest in the world in the Office Mass. You see, we have the uh, devotion to the Sacred Heart also developing as the devotion to St. Joseph developed. I told you about St. Augustine, writing about the heart of Jesus open on the cross, as though the church was born from his side, and the blood and the water that came out. And uh, also I talked about St. Gertrude, and her, her uh, apparitions of the Sacred Heart, her love for the Sacred Heart. In fact, at one point, she even rebuked St. John the Apostle, who appeared to her. Because she knew that he had rested his head on the chest of our Lord at the Last Supper. They reclined to eat in those days. And she asked St. John the Apostle, when you reclined, were you actually able to detect the heartbeat of Jesus? And St. John said, yes, he did. And so St. Uh, Gertrude rebuked him and said, why did you not tell us about this? It must have been an amazing experience. And uh, why did you not promote that devotion? Why was that not more, let's say, forthright in the earliest days of the church? And St. John answered her that God is reserving that devotion for the last days when the, when the love of mankind will grow cold. But that is when the devotion to the Sacred Heart will be most prominent in the minds of the Catholic people. Now we find it's try they're trying to supplant it with the Devotion to the Divine Mercy, a heartless creature with a ray of red light and a ray of white light but no heart coming out of the chest. That is not the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, of course. It is a very poor substitute for it. It is an obisordo substitute for it. Now, St. Margaret Mary had the operations of the Sacred Heart in the 1980s, you know, rather the 1680s, I beg your pardon that our Lord appeared to her when she was a young religious, the visitation sisters. And he actually uh, not only showed her his heart, but he, he placed his heart in her chest and he took her heart for his own. Uh, these apparitions are very beautiful. They show what our Lord wants. He wants our love to meet his love. He wants our love to, as it were, exchange with his love which is exactly what we're supposed to do when we receive Holy Communion. You know, St. Margaret Mary um, passed that devotion on, but she said that Jesus did issue one complaint, as though his heart groaned. On the cross, he groaned, I thirst. But to Margaret Mary, that groan became, Behold the heart which so loves mankind, and yet which is met with so much forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt. 
when you think about those three things, forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt, you realize they're not all the same. Uh, forgetfulness is just uh, not even thinking about it. Not even thinking about our Lord and His love. Negligence is thinking about it and not caring, neglecting it. And contempt is actually despising it. So there are three different levels here in the world. But there are those who do believe, but they are forgetful. And there are those who, uh, unfortunately, all too often, I'm afraid, we are among those. And our Lord asks us to please be mindful of his love for us. That's what one who loves does. The, the, Jesuits, the Jesuits were the ones who picked up the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and made it very much a part of their Jesuit life. In fact, in the early days of the Jesuits, when books would be published by the Jesuit scholars, they would have an image of the Sacred Heart within on the, uh, the title page. And this became kind of emblematic of the, Je the Jesuit work. The Jansenists, the Jansenists hated that symbol. The Jansenists were basically um, people who rejected the mercy of God. They had some very strange teachings, but the teachings were that God is very severe, and even with the grace of God, there are sins that men cannot, cannot resist temptations. Even with the grace of God. It's almost like they were Latter-day Protestants. They were very influential in the court. They were very influential in France during the French Revolution. They were the lawyers. The Jansenists had a great deal to do with overthrowing the crown there. But even before that, they were busy undermining belief in the Sacred Heart, and they targeted the Jesuits because of the Jesuits' devotion to the Sacred Heart. In kingdom after kingdom, in France, in Spain, in Portugal, they got the most Christian kings through the device of their prime ministers, who were Masons and Jesuits, uh, rather Jansenists, I should say, to suppress the Jesuits. And when the Jesuits were suppressed in these realms, the Jansenists would rampage through their libraries and tear open the books and rip out the pages with the image of the Sacred Heart because they found it so offensive. How is it possible? What madness was that? But this is how it was, because the Sacred Heart became the emblem for them of divine love and forgiveness of our sins. Finally, they prevailed upon a pope, Pope Clement XIV, to suppress the Jesuits throughout the entire world and all of that devotion to the Sacred Heart that they had. Now, that's very... I'm going to skip over a number of centuries here, because we have to, because of the time. But I just want to bring to your attention how much um, the imagery of the Sacred Heart actually is in the Mass. Uh, you know, the Mass goes back to the beginning of the church, obviously. goes back to the, it goes back to the, um, the Last Supper. But all the rites and ceremonies developed early on, but nonetheless, over time, they weren't all present at the Last Supper. You see, the Mass as we know it, we can trace back through historical documents to the time of the Leonine Sacramentary. Pope Leo I, the Great, was Pope in the middle of the 400s. 
And yes, there actually are documents from that time, something called the Leonine Sacramentary, which contains the canon of the Mass in Latin, as we know it. But for one thing, words that were added by St. Gregory the Great in the year 600, and grant us peace in our day, grant us peace in our day, words that were added to the Hakijikos. And that was the last change to the Roman canon for centuries and centuries and centuries until the modernists dared to violate that, uh, that seal. And of course, it's understandable that Pope Gregory introduced those words, grant us peace in our days, because of the barbarian invasions that all the Christians, the Catholics, had to deal with and to face. To this day, you know, when we put the missile down on the gospel side of the altar for the praying of the gospel. It's not facing straight ahead toward the sunrise. It's turned toward the north because in the earliest days, that's where the, the threat was coming from. And uh, so they turned toward the north, as, as it were, to uh, stand with the gospel as an impregnable defense against the attacks of Satan and barbarians savages and pagans, all the rest, that would attack our Lord and his church. So even to this day, we still have those little things that seem relatively insignificant, I suppose, to many people. They don't realize why, what they meant, and what the significance of them really was. But there's a point in the Mass that is just so redolent of the Sacred Heart. I've mentioned it to you before, I know. And that is, at the consecration, when the priest takes the host, he bows over the host, actually holding it in his hands, and he's, uh, he prays the words of consecration. For this is my body. He says those words, of course you know what happens next. He immediately adores by genuflecting and elevates the host for you to see. And then he places the host back on the, on the patent, the gold plate there, and then he genuflects. But when he sees the host lying there on that gold plate, it is the very image of the Sacred Heart. When you think of our Lord's, our Lord's heart, um, it is going to be, as it were, uh, sliced open by the spear. It is going to be crushed by our ingratitude, blood dry by the spear, the lance on the cross. He sees that flattened white host <clears throat> blood bloodless and at one point he even breaks up a piece of the host like the head of a spear it goes right to the very center of the host like a spear has pierced right into it he drops that part into the chalice but um, around that host as it's lying there on this gold plate it is surrounded by kind of a halo of gold light reflecting the lights in the ceiling above and so you have this like radiance around the host, as though the radiance is there coming from the host itself. And it is so remember it reminds one of the imagery of the Sacred Heart. It's as though he has the Sacred Heart right before him there, lying on the on the on the corporal. But then the time comes, of course, when it is uh, uh, rubrics call for consecrating the precious blood. And when the priest goes to consecrate the precious blood, he bows over the altar. He has the vestments on. He has to make sure that they don't, you know, ride up at all because he's actually going to be 
not quite laying his, his own breast on the altar because right there is the host on the paten, the host he's just consecrated, is right there before him, front and center on the, on the altar. And as he bows low over it and to consecrate the chalice, he has to be mindful. He's mindful of the presence of the consecrated host. And what he's doing, in a sense, is bringing his heart together with the sacred heart of Jesus in that host. He's bringing, as he bows low over that, he's bringing his own heart very close to that, that very image of the sacred heart, almost as St. John did at the Last Supper, bringing those two hearts together. And uh, so the imagery is there if we, if we are mindful of the mysteries that we're celebrating here. We can't help but see reflected in these ceremonies that are essential to the Mass. We can't help but see, again, that devotion to the Sacred Heart reserved for our day in the true holy sacrifice of the Mass. And I would like you to bring the spirit of St. Joseph, the spirit of St. Patrick, the spirit of St. Isidore, all of these great men, not fragile, manly men. I'd like you to bring them all in the doors of the church with you when you come. I'd like you to carry it throughout the whole world. The world needs men, men real men today. Men of faith and hope and charity. God, God grant it to you and me. <clears throat> but I ask you to bring that when you come to our Lord in the church. The spirit of St. Joseph there when you come to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, you think of our Lord holding the Christ child and how tenderly he loved him there. So do you to receive him. You think of St. Patrick uh, trudging those miles and miles through the, the rugged terrain of Ireland to take the Mass to the pagans who do not know, did not know God, and now they knew him. And now they knew their Savior in the Holy Sacrament. You think of St. Isidore, Isidore, starting his day early, attending Mass before he went to work, even braving the complaints of those who were begrudging the fact that he was praying, that he was at Mass, but the angel then making it possible for him, taking care of all of the worldly work he had to do, while he was willing to give himself in prayer to God. Think of all those things and bring that same spirit into the Mass with you. So let's pray and be on our way. We have the rosary to pray right now and then we'll be saved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, as it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I receive it with you. St. Joseph, pray for us. The Holy Guardian Angel, pray for us. St. Patrick, pray for us. St. Isidore, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.